we are constantly peddling narratives that are simplified narratives of good versus bad or um, a particular situation that must be dealt with in a binary way. A lot of the things that can make writing better, more entertaining, more enriching, that's also a place where you can do better political work in the writing. Welcome to Wonderland, where we explore the connections between pop culture, human nature, and social change. I'm Tracy Van Slyke. And I'm Bridget Antoinette Evans. Last time on Wonderland, we took a first step towards creating the kinds of stories we want to see in pop culture. We paired TV writer Diana Sun with anti-trafficking advocate Rachel Lloyd to explore what a collaboration between social justice and entertainment might look like. I'm excited about what will come from those two meetings. But the question remains, even if people like Diana and Rachel could create something game-changing together, could it get produced? Would the entertainment industry and audiences actually embrace these stories? Today we will talk with two people who think deeply about pop culture and what's getting in the way of change. My name's Sean T. Collins, and I'm a writer and critic, primarily about television. My name is Nanthara Sen. I am a political educator and a racial justice trainer. I am the culture and content project manager at raceforward.org and colorlines.com, and I am a short fiction writer. We've been interested in talking to Nayantara about pop culture since we first heard her give a talk at the Facing Race Conference two days after the 2016 presidential election. We paired her with Sean T. Collins, an artist, comic book creator, and television critic. What we deeply admire about Sean's TV criticism is that it goes much deeper than the average TV review and makes us look at the real-world implications of fiction. And we can't get enough of it. We're binging on TV criticism. That's what you do when you're obsessed with pop culture and social change. We started off our conversation with Nantara. We wanted to know why she has chosen to apply a racial justice analysis to pop culture and fiction in particular. And she got right to the heart of the culture change challenge. So I have been doing movement-based work for a while, and I was starting to get frustrated. It's hard to find spaces that are arts integrated. It's hard to be both an artist and an activist at the same time. It's hard to bring storytelling strategies to organizers and activists that aren't just propaganda related, right? Um, So I felt limited by how much of my sector is focused on writing that has to do with proving the fact as opposed to imagining the future. I wanted to actually have the ability to bring a much more imaginative, visionary, and expansive set of questions and ideals to the conversation, which fiction allows you to do and nonfiction doesn't allow you to do. So, Sean, what's your reaction to Nayantara's thoughts about the different possibilities in fiction and nonfiction? Because, I mean, you are both an artist operating in the fictional world of comics and a nonfiction critic writing about pop culture. What's the thread that brings together your art and your criticism? The thing that unifies it all for me, particularly coming from comics into television, is that in comics, everything that winds up on a page is a deliberate decision. If there's a person on that page, someone drew the face, the hands, the hair, the eyes. If uh, Coloring was all a deliberate choice. Dialogue, the placement of the words on the page, everything is a deliberate choice. And I think I carried that over into my television writing. So I'm looking at elements that I think are sometimes overlooked, like casting, 
uh, just the physical comportment of a of an actor on the screen, voice, sound. It's it's in other words, it's not just plot and dialogue and what's going to happen next, and maybe like wow, that person was really good in that scene. Like there's all these other elements that just I have no choice but to. Th- I'm just so trained to think of everything as conscious and deliberate that I can't get out of it, and I think that's helped, you know. Um, I'm thinking what what you brought up is making me think a lot about um, authors get to have such heavy control over all aspects of those decision makings, whether it's the the race, gender, or um, comportment, physical comportment of um, the character or the staging or the setting. Um, and I'm I'm really interested in those kinds of choices that come across as being more organic and more subjective. And in my line of work, I do a lot of trainings and things around implicit and unconscious bias as it relates to all aspects of oppression. And so it's interesting to think about, of course, a author has, you know, all the biases that they have in terms of figuring out, like, do I pick this character versus that character? Does the storyline actually change if I make my character a trans-identified person versus a cisgender person or a woman of color versus a white man or something like that? Yeah. I think maybe there's really kind of no such thing as overthinking these things, right? I feel like hearing you talk about this stuff, you know, specifically in a political context makes me realize that a lot of the things that can make writing better, more entertaining, more enriching, that's also a place where you can do better political work in the writing. You know, I'm always complaining about characters or storylines that I just refer to as styrofoam packing peanuts narratively it's inert it's just a thing that needs to happen to get the story where the writer has decided it needs to go so this character does this thing why does they why do they need to do that this is all coming out of your brain you do have some control of how that works so you know use it and i, I think that in a lot of cases it'll make the story better but it also gives you a lot more opportunity to kind of change potential energy into kinetic energy in all the elements of the story and just be like, this character can actually have a meaning beyond being, you know, the wheelbarrow that gets stuff from point A to point B. Like now it's a person holding the wheelbarrow. And what do they do? What's their story? Why are they doing that? How did they get there? Are there shows for either of you that you feel like are actually doing that really well, that are being really conscious about their choices around characters and that you really think are doing it well and actually speak to the larger societal issues that we're dealing with right now? Or I would add to that scenes within shows where you think, as you said, Sean, that there's a potential to transform an inert moment into a kinetic moment. Oh, sure, yeah. Right off the top of my head. The first... (laughs) great television show that I watch. It's also one of the first in the new golden age of television, The Sopranos. And I remember this so vividly because it touched on issues that were and remain a very present part of the lives of people who are important to me. There's a mob boss named Johnny Sack, and he was sort of like an antagonist to Tony Soprano for a while. They would be friends, they would be enemies, they would almost kill each other. He, uh, His wife, Ginny, I think was her name, was overweight. And this would be the subject of wisecracks among the other mobsters because he, unlike most of them, was faithful to her. And I remember him coming home unexpectedly one day and he finds that she is binging on 
candy bars that she's stashed in the laundry. Well, John, our culture. What's that? You have any idea what you've done? She panics, you know, and he's talking to her and he's like, you lied to you me. You lied to me. You lied. I know I've came with these last few years. I see the other wives, women, look at them. Don't I look at you like that? Haven't I always? You know, he's not like, oh, you gross, disgusting. He's heartbroken because the woman he loves is sick and hiding it from him. And I, I, I was blown away for several reasons. One, again, who are these people? Could be a, no, a nobody. But they, not only did they make them have real concerns, but they were concerns that were important to me and that were affecting the lives of, of people that I knew. That's still the gold standard to me. There was no such, almost no such thing as a minor character on that show. And that stuck with me. What about you, Nayantaro? What shows do you think are getting it right? Um, the example actually that comes to my mind from the show I've been watching on and off called Being Mary Jane. So in this show, Gabrielle Union is the main character, Mary Jane. She's a news anchor and all the tri trials and travails of her romantic life essentially are um, what the show's revolving around. To be a man with backbone who is as passionate about what he wants as I am, that's what I want. Who are you kidding? You would run that man in every other but there is a, a side character who is one of her best friends who really doesn't have a role for the first couple of, I think the first two seasons, besides to be a support system to the main protagonist. And then halfway through, I think the third season, they identify that she's dealing with severe depression, has a history of childhood sexual abuse, and is essentially living a life of unresolved trauma. And they, in the storyline, kill her off. So she commits suicide. And there, there's a really remarkable shift in the narrative at that point to actually bring the hidden uh, sort of subliminal trauma that is affecting the motivations and the lives of multiple characters in the story to the forefront. You could see the storyline really grappling with trauma and what that means for a character or a cast of characters that are all primarily women of color. And really, it would have been like the show could have continued with the the all of the other characters besides Gabrielle Union just sort of being in the background. So one of the things we were starting to talk a little bit about what stories and what shows are doing things right. But we also wanted to talk about what they do wrong. What are the common tropes and stereotypes that we're seeing that we've seen in the past that are continuing today? And why are these continuing? Oh, number one for me is the narrative of redemptive violence. That may be number one, two, three, four, and five for me. <laughs> you know, listen, I, I got the Star Wars Rebel Alliance insignia tattooed on my arm when, 20 years ago. I have the White Tree of Gondor tattooed on my other arm. Like, I'm aware of the the thrill of good versus evil in these big conflicts. But I think even within Tolkien, who saw all of his friends die in the trenches in World War One, there's a sadness to the Lord of the Rings. There's a feeling that, that the victory can't, simply by virtue of having been won in battle, no victory is complete because everybody loses, sort of. I wish that more of that were present in culture right now. Um in terms of a theme or a trope that I feel like is really pissing me off these days, a complete delegitimization of a class politics in 
shows like The Fosters, shows like Blackish. I mean, why are we watching shows where all topics are on the table, but the actual class configurations of the the family is never really interrogated? And from what I've heard, this used to not be the case in the history of television in the U.S. I didn't grow up here, so I'm not totally familiar with a lot of those um, shows. But just even in watching Roseanne, he's on the phone trying to keep us from losing our house. Hey, let's talk about that. <laughs> See, we're broke. I can't even afford to go buy groceries unless it's double coupon day. Mm-hmm. You know, we should talk about that. Well, Roseanne, you know, it's a fascinating show to go back and watch. But I remember, I mean, this was years ago now, fondly talking about Roseanne with someone who was like, oh yeah, that was back when poor people were allowed on television in America. And it hasn't improved. And this was, I probably said that 15 years ago, just in a conversation, I still remember it. It's embarrassing to think about why are we why do we have a industry that can pick up on issues of of one dynamic at a time. Like we can only talk about race, but we can't talk about race and class. We can't talk about race, gender and class. Um that's one big offender. I think the other offender um and I'm feeling complicated about this example because I actually really like the show The Fosters, but what I don't like about the show and you know for those of you that haven't seen it. It's a mixed race lesbian couple that fosters many, many other kids. It's a beautiful show really about the expansion of what a family constitutes. There are going to be consequences for the behaviors you can control, Jesus. And lying is one of them. You throw that in. And what? There are inpatient programs, hospitals for intensive behavioral therapy. You continue to act out like this and that's exactly where you're going. But what I don't like about the show is the way that the casting is set up is that you just sort of plug and play these different identities, right? It's like a diversity politics that it's infiltrated into the narrative where all you have to do is create an amalgamation of characters that one person is gay or queer, one person is black or brown, one person is dealing with XYZ issue, and then you have like a a narrative that somehow should be the sum of those parts. Um, I also feel like the the implication of that is we end up with an industry that tokenizes, that exceptionalizes, and that produces narratives that the only barometer should be like, oh, do, are, we, are we touching on a queer issue? Or are we touching on a race issue? Or are we touching on a you know, gender issue? We want to dig a little deeper into a couple of specific tropes and how we see them playing out in real life. Sean, why don't you start us off by talking about one of the biggest shows on TV, AMC's The Walking Dead. What's happening on that show? Well, the main message of The Walking Dead is might makes right, essentially. You know, the the whole morality of that show is that Morality is determined solely on whether what you're doing is good for the safety and preservation of the in-group. You know, it's all about struggle and survival and the, the, the strong, you know, have to fight against the weak. And the thing that I think makes it hit home the hardest is that it's a storytelling choice, which is any time a character is presented with an option where they could behave with mercy or shoot first and ask questions later, when they behave with mercy, it is always a disaster in the end. There's never any deviation from that. If you're nice to someone, that person's going to come back and hurt you in some way, or it's going to leave the door open, I mean, literally leave the door open for zombies to come in or something like that. It happens that way time and time again. It's a false dichotomy. And lo and behold, 
when Jared Kushner, uh, Donald Trump's son-in-law, was doing his sort of victory lap, he told Forbes that they targeted Trump ads to The Walking Dead because they found that Walking Dead viewers were very sympathetic to Trump's anti-immigrant message. And it was such a moment of like just grim vindication for what I'd been saying because it was outside your group, there's just endless hordes of barbarians who will tear you apart unless you pull no punches and just destroy them on sight. It really is that literal. Yeah, I am... I really enjoyed reading the fascism of Walking Dead that you wrote. I think in the piece you mentioned like the aesthetics of fascism and I've been thinking a little bit about that because fascism relies on a simplified aesthetics and I think that's what Walking Dead is getting to as well. And I think the kind of like hyper-capitalist, fascist, racist, sexist politics that I'm trying to interrogate do rely on simplifying things so that you can only really see like a binary black and white, a yes and no. Um, And that is what I actually think is a huge problem with TV production broadly, storytelling broadly, that we... We are constantly peddling narratives that are simplified narratives of good versus bad. I think I'm really interested to see how we as cultural producers and content makers can rely on the power of fiction to be able to also create alternative narratives that then do get infused into our culture. Well, right now in particular, because certainly in, in the political sphere, in meetings I've gone to or, or things I've participated in, I often come away you know, I'm writing down notes like a Democratic Socialist of America meeting and and I come home and and it just says like failure of imagination. And it seems like so much of what these groups, you know, that are trying to combat the reactionary forces of our present political moment are coming up against is just this, this walling off of what's possible in the political sphere. You know, the example that's very current and, and obvious and easy to grasp right now is the the concept of Medicare for all or universal health care, which is an entirely plausible thing that basically every country in the world has, but us, you know, certainly on our level of economic development, but it's treated as like a, a pipe dream, a fantasy, a dangerous fantasy here. And, you know, eventually you, hopefully people get to a moment I did where you just step out of what you thought was possible and you're like, oh, look at this. This is completely possible. And that is a storytelling exercise in a way. You know, one of the things I think that got me on this road was there's a tweet that was retweeted a bunch. It was just, what would you do if there were universal basic income and you didn't have to worry so much about working? And it was just an exercise that the person tweeted just to get people to think about like what their ideal life would look like. You know, so there's, there's positive elements to that. It gets you thinking about what you really love to do and maybe you start thinking about how do we move in that direction. And then I think there's also kind of a, a dark side to it where you're like, you know, there's a lot of people who, who do live this situation because they're extremely rich and the money's concentrated in their hands and, and they don't have to have the same sort of struggles that working people have or that poor people have. You, you can tell a dark story, and this is certainly very important to me as a horror guy. You can tell a dark story in a way that pushes people toward empathy by making them think of, of what it means to suffer in these scenarios, by maybe raising issues inside them 
both inside yourself as a creator and inside the audience? Just picking up from what you were talking about with audiences, what's missing from TV today that you think audiences need to see? The kind of stories, the kind of complexity that really reflects where we are, like truly reflects where we are as a society now or actually opens up their imagination to think about where we could go and where we need to go? Are there certain storylines, certain characters? Uh, let me think. I'd like to see different people behind the camera. You know, I think there's, every time it seems like there's progress being made, someone actually crunches the numbers and it's like, nope, nope, no progress. Still like 3% of directors are like, you know, women of color and, you know, 20% are women at all and, and, and so on and so forth. And it's it's grim. And obviously there are people who, you know, very famously, like Shonda Rhimes is probably the best example, who's like a, you know, who's an empire unto herself. But it's it's not enough, I guess, you know. In, even individual shows that make a real effort, it's still just one show, you know. Like Empire doesn't think a great job with making sure that it's not just the, the, the usual suspects like shooting these things and writing these things and editing these things and producing these things and... But it's, that's just one show. I just think the more voices you get in there, the more the greater range of stories you can tell, the more potential you have to turn those styrofoam-packing peanut moments into something interesting because you have other people being like, wait a minute, why don't we do this instead of this? And it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking about what it takes to produce structural stories around oppression and around the the lived realities of marginalized people in the country. What are the, the historical contexts or the historical implications of what the themes and the tropes in the story are? So I watched Get Out, you know, with I watched it with my teenage brother and we were shrieking in terror the whole time. It's terrifying because of the the racial and cultural violence of the history of what it's meant for interracial relationships between white women and black men in this country, right? And the history of medical experimentation on black communities. And and if you're the kind of audience member that watches that and gets it and can feel in their body the terror of that history and the implications of living under conditions of a white system, a white supremacist system that kills off black bodies still then the movie is scary beyond the the confines of the narrative. Um, and I want to see more stories, TV shows, and films that actually speak to both the historical piece and the the implications of what that history has meant. And I think there is a, a massive dehistoricization of narratives in the cultural realm broadly. I think it's because we try to not remember our history, and I would like to see that shift I think it does a disservice to our our movement work. The other thing I feel like I would like to see less of in TV shows, this idea that there must be a shining protagonist that like pulls the entire narrative behind them. Um, so like Frank Underwood's situation in House of Cards, like he he makes the entire governmental bureaucratic system work for him because he's the heroic leader. I'm interested in narratives that do not fall into that heroic leader model because it's not in alignment with my own narrative politics and my own um, organizing politics around doing community-centered work. We want countries and societies that are about community building and partnership and deep alliance and, and solidarity. And our narratives don't reflect that on TV. 
Any idea, um, the two of you, why this idea of sort of the like protagonist hero construct is so deeply ingrained inside of a fictional story or any storytelling, I think, in our culture? And are there examples that you would point to of other kind of cultural storytelling traditions where that's not the case? Well, maybe it has something to do. Um, that's sort of how we picture artists too, right? You know, like you're this lone figure crouched above the keyboard or, you know, at the easel or the drawing board or whatever, and you're making it all happen. You're the heroic figure in your own narrative. Yeah, I think uh, I do characterize that as a reflection of a uh, American culture that relies on individualism, meritocracy, a Eurocentric, a white-centric worldview that prioritizes the elevation of a single single leader that then pulls the community behind them. Um, and I do think that there are other folkloric and oral history traditions and narrative traditions from other parts of the world that do not fall in line with that particular framework. Um, at most of the comic books I was exposed to as a kid in India, where I grew up, were actually comic representations of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, which are the, the mythological and Hindu epics of, of the country. Um, and they're like, they're, it's hard to actually pinpoint a protagonist there. They like swap in and out with the mortals. It's the pantheon of characters is so broad. And I think I don't see that in, in mainstream American cultural production. Well, I'm going to think a lot more about community-based narratives, I think. The use of ensemble storytelling and, and what can be done with that to uh, stress the importance of community and solidarity and moving away from sort of a leadership model. You know, I certainly, I think, just in electoral politics terms, we've all learned that the hard way, you know, like this sort of over-focus on the presidency is this sort of heroic position that will enable us to get by collapsed as we lost not only the presidency, but possibly the Supreme Court, the Senate, the House, most state legislatures and governorships, you know, it's just a complete collapse of that sort of form of politics. And I think that it's amazing to see how quickly, you know, thanks to the groundwork laid by people who are doing this work for years, thanklessly, the the entire left and liberal wing of the political spectrum in America, like, has reacted with a sense of that solidarity, you know, with the marches and protests and just trying to focus more on local level things and work our way upward. Yeah, I'm thinking about the last point Sean made. If people in general are shifting how they think about collective power in this political moment, what about the people in Hollywood? Well, it reminds me of what we heard from Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post, how one or two great TV shows don't actually reflect a critical shift in Hollywood. The stakes are too high. TV's expensive. Producers want to give audiences what they're used to, simple narratives that divide good from evil, that have a clear protagonist, and that don't challenge stereotypes. But we live in complicated times, and those simple, unchallenged narratives can be downright harmful, as we learned today. And they don't necessarily make for good storytelling, as Sean pointed out. So writers take every opportunity to create a richer story and use all the characters, all of them. Give us more holistic view of culture while you're doing it. Right. That makes me think about Nayantara's point about changing the heroic protagonist trope. 
what if more shows actually reflected collective power rather than individual heroes or anti-heroes? Next time on Wonderland, we have a special two-part episode. First, we'll go deep into fan culture to explore what it looks like when audiences have the power to create their own stories in entertainment and in social movements. And it's Tracy's turn to jump into the conversation. She'll be talking to Sean Taylor of Nerds of Color about different ways that fans are telling their own stories, innovating new forms, and impacting pop culture. I can't wait. Then we'll have a special conversation between Alicia Garza of Black Lives Matter and internet innovator Kenyatta Cheese. They'll discuss how social movements and online fandoms are engaging audiences and changing culture. Next time on Wonderland. Wonderland is made possible with support from the Nathan Cummings Foundation, Unbound Philanthropy, and the Pop Culture Collaborative. Nancy Vitale produced the series. Destry Sibley is our editorial producer. Duff Harris is our sound engineer. Rigoberta Lara is our research assistant. This episode was recorded at the Awareness Group Studios in New York City. Special thanks to Kevin Plessner. Visit our website, thisiswonderland.us, for resources to develop your own culture change strategy. There are photos and videos of our conversation with Sean and Nayantara and links to their work and to the films and TV shows mentioned in this episode. 